0: Raising the Bets is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to Raising the Bets. We're a Catholic couple raising five kids outside of Boston. Join us as we share the joys and challenges of marriage homeschool, and our adventures near and far as we make sense of the world and experience the best parts of our culture. I'm Dom Bettinelli.
1: And I'm Melanie Bettinelli. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Dom.
0: <laughs> she says to... to, to uh, what is the word? I forget what the word is, but uh, just to pat me on the head. <laughs> Patronizing? That's the word I was looking for. Thanks for helping with that word that I didn't know. <laughs> uh-huh. So it is a new year, twenty twenty three, and it's our first uh, episode of the podcast. We took a week off for Christmas because neither of us wanted to record on Christmas evening. No,
1: eight <laughs> other things today.
0: So let's talk about uh, what's been going on, and we talk about Christmas itself. We we went to midnight mass. We did, we did as usual, and that was that went pretty well. It was. Um, it's a little concerned that we might not all make it. The, there was a child who fell asleep, but um, but woke up and was able to go. So that's good.
1: Yeah, this was the first year where the three youngest decided not to go to sleep before midnight mass, but just to stay up. And what would they watch with me? What did we watch? They watched something with White me. White Christmas. White
0: Christmas. That's right. We watched White Christmas together, which is one of my... Favorite Christmas movies? I usually watch It's a Wonderful Life on Christmas Eve, but because I just watched it for a podcast, which you could go see on the Secrets of Movies and TV shows, uh, I didn't want to watch it again already. So I thought I'd watch White Christmas, and I always enjoy that. Right. The best things happen when you're dancing.
1: I think I've seen it maybe once. Oh, that's so good. I just, it just, it's got that
0: 1950s. Musical, perfect life sort of thing. I mean, obviously life wasn't perfect, but it's this sort of image of just separate clubs and you know taking the train to Vermont and smoking a pipe, looking cool and
1: uh huh. So it's about image.
0: Well, part of it is about image. It's that it's that fifties cool thing, you know. I don't know. It's this there's something about that. In the idealized version of the fifties that I still am nostalgic for, even though I wasn't alive then, but you know what I mean? It's like, I know it's, it's an idealization. It's not the way it really was. Just like, uh, Gen Z today has this idealized view of the eighties, which I crack it's up. It's weird. It is so funny. Cause when I see the eighties stuff, like the, uh, their idea of what the eighties was and I'm like, no, I mean, sitcoms were like that, but no, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, there was big hair and stuff like that. But anyway, white Christmas. So we had uh, midnight mass. Father Matt celebrated that. That was really nice to have Father Matt for midnight mass. And then uh we had, uh, as the usual, get up in the morning. We got up at a pretty leisurely pace Christmas we, morning.
1: I was amazed at how much they sl- let me sleep in on Christmas morning. <laughs> yes. It was nice. Yep. And then we've, you know, we've really.
0: They like getting presents, but they're not obsessed with the presents. Yeah. And I think we've done a good job with making sure that they have not bec- been obsessed with the presents. Uh, we had d- dinner at home, and we'll talk about what we had for dinner in a bit. But uh, we ended up going to my brother's house for dessert. At first, we thought there was going to just be us and them because, uh, you know, my my oldest sister actually was sick and so she stayed home and i don't know what where Evie was going to be why she wasn't going to come but she ended up coming uh my brother bernie and his wife carol they have covid so they stayed home <clears throat> so uh but we went over it was nice and we saw uh everyone there all the ones were, p was missing my oldest nephew and joe wasn't there was he no no. Uh the the one next was and neither was John Paul who is in
1: one of your nephews was there.
0: Yes, that's, that's right. It. Just Homanek. Right. right, with his girlfriend. Um so it was it was nice. So we we stayed for an hour and a half or so we had, you know, some, some chatting and that sort of thing. And then um yeah. Uh so this week uh the Christmas week had an unexpected event, which was my mom, who's in a nursing home. She has, um, uh, she has dementia. So she's been in a nursing home since, uh, June. Actually, she went, remember she went to the hospital the first day of our vacation this year. Remember that? And she never went back home. She went from there to the nursing home. Um, and so, uh. She, I went and visited her in the nursing home on Tuesday with the, with, with uh, Isabella and Sophia. Then the next day, she ended up actually in the hospital. She had COVID, turns out, which, hey, I was with my mom and she had COVID. <laughs> Luckily, I didn't catch it. And then, uh, and so she was in the hospital and she had like all these complications. And to be long story short, we thought this was it. We thought my mom was going to be leaving us at Christmas time. And it was very bad. It was like the, the doctor who was telling us what it was talking about, like her blood acidosis levels were literally off the charts. Like literally we can't measure them. Uh, and then they finally, they got them down a little bit and it was, so I had to rush in there on Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday and stayed there for most of the day with uh, my siblings as we waited to find things out. And, we ended up, I ended up coming home and, and the so the interesting is, is she's rallied. She's gotten better. She's as of where we're, this recording, she's headed back to the nursing home from the hospital. So, you know, good for you, mom, to hold it on. She's really, she's really strong. My mom is physically strong. Uh She, she doesn't give up like that. Um. One of the interesting aspects of it was when the doctor came in to talk to us about her condition, um, this tiny woman, like she couldn't have been five feet. She was really tiny. Dr. Khan. And I kept wanting to call her Kamala Khan, you know, Ms. Marvel. And Kamala, why are you there? (laughs) Like her mother, like her mother's accent uh-huh anyway um
1: i'm sure she would have been very amused
0: she would have been very amused for me to to imitate a pakistani mother for uh to her that would have been gone over just great so but she was telling us and uh we were explaining you know because we had to go over the do not resuscitate resuscitate orders and what do we want to do and all the you know the the uh contingencies we emphasized our faith and you know, what we wanted within those parameters of that faith and my mom's suffering and, you know, asking questions about what's going on. And in the end, she was like, she said, I don't think I've ever had a family that was as united in their approach to, you know, to what was going on as well-informed with as good of questions um, and, to, you know, it, just, it was as calm as we were. So I don't, you know, I know what that says, but I felt like we were witnessing our faith to the doctor and to the staff because we, you know, we had been emphasizing we need to get a priest in there and we'd, we'd pray with my mom and that sort of thing. So I hope that was a good witness. So uh, so if you get, if you say a prayer for my mom, um, we lost my dad, as if you've been listening to it at all um, last September and. To be honest, I didn't know if my we'd keep we'd have my mom for a year after that, because um just for you know you know how it goes. So we'll we'll see. She's holding on. So uh we did actually have a death this this week was Pope Benedict died on on Saturday. Right. So um I I keep getting people wanting like, what is S Q Pen gonna do about it? Do you have special podcasts planned? I don't feel like it I feel like it would be capitalizing. I mean, other people have to report on things. That's fine. I don't, I don't mind what other people do, but I don't have anything particular to do for that, but I, I I did want to just, you know, talk a little bit about how Pope Benedict is for us cuz he kind of figures a little bit into our history uh in a tangential way. His
1: his election was during the time that you and I were dating.
0: Uh so he would have been elected in 2005. I think we might have been just engaged right it was right around when we got engaged so we were together at an event with scott and kimberly Hahn when pope uh john paul died
1: oh that's right so we were engaged because that we were definitely engaged when we went to that yeah so and then
0: so for the election so you used to come over and hang out at my apartment while i was working and you would sit on my bed and grade papers right and uh
1: and were you there when that happened? No, I no, think you called me. Right. I was at my office at, at Salem State and you, I remember you calling me and saying that we, we had a new Pope.
0: Right. And that it, was, that it was Ratzinger. It's Ratzinger. It's Ratzinger. I remember like yelling on the phone. It's Ratzinger. It's Ratzinger. I was so excited. You were very excited. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, you know, I was, I was working from home. 2005. Oh, yeah. This was long before. Yeah, I'm, th- I'm mixing it up in my mind with the Francis election. Um, So, yes, that was so it was kind of a big deal. It's just one of the reasons why we what part of the reason why we named our eldest son, Benedict. Right.
1: The other reason being that Benedict is my dad's middle name. So, yeah, um, but but he was Benedict Joseph in part because we thought it was kind of cool to put those two names together because of Pope Benedict's.
0: Yes, because he was um, Joseph was Ratzinger. Joseph Ratzinger.
1: Yeah. And uh, it actually turned out that, that Benedict Joseph was, in fact, my um, great uncle's name. That's I funny. I didn't know. I knew that my dad had an Uncle Ben, and I suppose it made sense that my dad was named after his Uncle Benedict, but I didn't know. And uh, that Uncle Ben was Benedict Joseph. So. That's funny. It turned out to be a family name, but but it was definitely we picked Benedict Joseph in part because we loved Pope Benedict so much.
0: Yep. So, uh, you know, God rest him and, you know, rest in peace. One of the towering intellects of not just of the 20th century, but in the church's history and probably one of the most brilliant popes ever.
1: And yet so humble and so Mm -hmm. like I find so many of his books so readable. Like he doesn't read as like, this guy is way too smart. You can't possibly understand no. him.
0: No, there, there, there are writings of his that are like
1: that. Oh yeah, I, I, f- <laughs> I picked up one or two books and I was like, yeah. no, this is well, this they weren't- is a book aimed at theologians, right. not aimed at me.
0: Yes. But, but with his
1: books, like the Jesus of Nazareth books or the oh. um, encyclicals like um, Space Alvi or... Deus um, Caritas. Est. Caritas. Est. Those are yeah. so good. Uh, in but fact, you, I had I had Bella reading those for yeah. um, for school. So
0: get a chance if you haven't read them. Get the Jesus of Nazareth books. Those are like the the one on the uh, on on the Holy Week, the the Passion. It, it is a great Lenten reading. You should like read that for Lent. It is fantastic.
1: And the one on the infancy narratives is perfect for Advent. And, yeah, and definitely.
0: Totally, yeah. Grab those books. Those those are really good. Um, so may he rest in peace. So the other thing we did this week was we we took a day to go to the Museum of Fine Arts, which we hadn't done in a long time. Um,
1: Not since the summer? The spring? I don't even remember when It's I been went.
0: a while. Yeah, I know I should look up the photos. But uh, we didn't go for any particular exhibit, per se. Like, there wasn't, like, a special exhibition that we were going to. But the girls, Bella and Sophie particularly, had some galleries they wanted to see
1: right well lucy had been has been reading egyptian history so she wanted to definitely hit the egyptian galleries and she did and she actually spent some time sketching she brought her sketchbook and she she sketched um made a few sketches in the egyptian galleries which was fun and uh it was very cute i drew with her a little bit and uh isabella and sophia both wanted to see the byzantine um exhibit because bella had done a um class on the history of Byzantium this uh, fall. Right. Unfortunately, we didn't get there until the very end of the day. And by that time, everyone was a little bit tired. So I think we might need to swing back the first thing next time we go to the museum.
0: Well, we kept getting distracted into the other galleries on the way back to it.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, it was. um, The the Byzantine exhibition, though, was really awesome. It is. It is uh they had a gigantic uh altarpiece like uh with the icons and then they also had um my one of my favorite things was that they had music playing of Byzantine chant
0: uh, right the kyrie there was a
1: they they had the kyrie they had the um Christos anestos the the uh Christ easter, is risen easter uh hymn Yep. And then a couple of others, uh, I can't remember.
0: They were, uh, oh, Champion General T.A. Param or Maho and the Trisag- Trisagion, Trisagion, Thrice Holy Him. So uh, I have the picture up here. It was a
1: really nice touch to kind of Im- make the experience very immersive.
0: Yes. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was really good. It was a, g- a great exhibit. Um, so... Yeah, i uh, trying to think of what else we we saw that. Oh, and then, of course, I love going to the Impressionists. I love standing there in front of Van Gogh, like, oh, look, this famous Van Gogh, and looking at the, the paint strokes and that thick glob of paint and thinking, Van Gogh painted that, you know? Uh-huh. Just, I, I love standing in front of these paintings, like, two feet away, and say, like, wow, history. I'm so close you could touch it, and if anyone throws... Tomato soup at it, I will tackle them and pull them to the ground. Those those people drive me crazy. Uh, So, yeah, it was really cool. It was good. I was, I'm so glad we went. Um, We have to think of where else we want to go. Do we want to go to a different museum or other places that we haven't been lately?
1: The kids are all rooting for either the zoo or the aquarium. Um, I would also like to take them to the Harvard Art Museum, which none of them have been to. I've, Mm -hmm. I've been, but.
0: Actually, Ben was saying he'd like to go to the science museum.
1: Oh yeah, Museum of Science.
0: They have never seen the Van de Graaff generators.
1: I know because B- Bella used to be terrified of the whole lightning thing. And yeah,
0: it's this huge device, like several stories tall, that makes lightning. It is awesome, right?
1: I mean, I think in the past people were a little bit too had too many sensory issues, but I think yeah. now they're old enough that they would all appreciate it, and yeah. nobody would be freaked out. Yeah the
0: The aquarium is super expensive. <laughs> it,
1: it is super expensive. Yeah, uh,
0: compared to all the rest, and the I mean, they have to feed all those fish, and then um, and the penguins, and the penguins, and the uh, the the museum of science isn't too bad. But uh, I love the
1: museum of science. Actually, it's really yeah. fun.
0: But the, I'd say the two best values in town for families are the uh, the, the the zoo, the Franklin Park Zoo. And the Museum of Fine Arts, like if if you you know if you're gonna go more than once to the Museum of Fine Arts in a year, you get a museum membership for your whole family, and it pays for itself. Um, and the same thing with the the, uh, the zoo membership, it pays for itself. The uh, Museum of Science is probably would pay for itself, but it's a lot more. Like it's it's a lot more all all altogether. To, all so um, yeah, I'm glad we went. It was nice. All right, so let's talk about food stuff. There's been lots of food. We've and
1: Lots of eating because, you know, Christmas time, hello. Feasting. Uh,
0: and too much to really go over every single dish. We'd be here all night talking about all the different things we made that were new. Mm-hmm. I just want to talk a little bit about our Christmas dinner. Uh, I think I mentioned last time that I'd picked up a rib roast at the store where it was on super sale. What so super sale? It wasn't prime rib because it wasn't prime quality. It was choice quality. Oh, it, it was, was
1: still incredibly <laughs> tender and good. And if that wasn't prime, I don't even really care because it was,
0: it came over. Really, so yeah. the way I prepared it was uh, 24 hours in advance. I took it out of the, its bag, dried it all off and then uh, salted it all over. In fact, I used actually a Teske brisket, Texas brisket rub that I have. Uh, Cause that's mostly pepper and salt. And maybe there might be a little garlic or whatever. And, just covered it all over and then put it back in the fridge uncovered overnight. And it gets that nice. It's not not exactly dry age. It's sort of a dry brine, really, Uh, but it gets nice and dry in the outside. So it'll get a nice crust. Put it in the oven in the morning at 250 for, I think because of the size, it was four hours. It was really way bigger than we needed. I mean, there was. There was more a lot meat. of meat on that. Yeah. I ended up eating most of it in leftovers and stuff, but yeah, <laughs> I ended up having to toss a little bit of it because it was a week and it was a little bit left. But uh, so 250, three and a half, maybe four hours. You take it out and let it sit for an hour. You, you put foil over it and throw vegetables, root veggies into the roasting pan and cook those for 45 minutes in the oven at 425, I think it was. Then when it's done, you put the roast back in. I really should have taken the vegetables out at that point.
1: Yeah, they got a little bit overdone.
0: The, the recipe says to leave them in, but it really should have taken them out. And I put it back, the, it was back in there under the broiler for five minutes. Just five five minutes to just to get that, that really nice crust on the inside. And it was perfectly done. So tender. So fall apart in your mouth.
1: I, I honestly, I think I would probably have preferred the vegetables done separately. Yeah, I I'm, I don't know. I'm kind of disappointed in the cooked in the pan because I feel like it doesn't really. The vegetables are sort of a secondary afterthought thing, and they're they're not quite as.
0: It's such a big trend. The whole like tray bake, bake everything in one pan. You know, roasting everything together. But I, I don't know. I'd get like a separate pan and just put it, put it in a different time. You know what I mean? I yeah, I agree. It's. I think
1: it's more the tri- I, that's more about convenience and less about quality of the vegetables. Like, I don't think they come out tasting better. Right.
0: Right. So the the roast itself was really great. And I served it with a um, horseradish sauce. Uh, I liked it. I don't think anybody else had the horseradish sauce. No, nobody else ate the horse. I really liked sauce. it. And it was it was good. And then you made challah uh, for bread, as usual. And um, then we had mushrooms, like uh, sauteed mushrooms. I did a
1: repeat of the really good sweet potatoes from Thanksgiving. Oh my gosh. It's like, it's like
0: sweet potato pie. It's so sweet. It's good. You don't really have it like at the holiday. Don't eat it any time of the year because you get really it fat from it.
1: Didn't actually put that much sugar in it. It's the orange juice that makes it really pop.
0: Right. So you we, just, you roast them, you mash them with orange juice, a little bit of brown sugar. Some butter lots of butter. And lots of butter. Yeah. Yeah, that that's really the orange juice is the is the key to that one. Uh yeah. And then I don't know, we had some desserts. What do we have for dessert?
1: Um the the kids made sugar cookies. Yep. And I made some rum balls
0: and, and then we had whatever uh, uh tiramisu over at my brother's.
1: Oh, they had tiramisu and apple pie and some like oh, Carol made a beautiful um Irish like Irish bread, sweet bread, sweet bread, um, like okay. like a sweet soda bread.
0: Settle something for us, folks. Is pie a Thanksgiving dessert, a Christmas dessert or, or Thanksgiving and Christmas dessert? We agree it's a Thanksgiving dessert, but when you think of
1: pie,
0: does you do you or think? No, Christmas? when you think
1: of Christmas, do you think pie? That's what I mean. Like like, if you're thinking of your your de rigueur, what we have to have for Christmas is pie on your list, because. Dom said, what kind of pie are we having for Christmas? And I was like, pie for Christmas? Yeah. I like, We've never, <laughs> I've never thought of pie like cookies and cakes.
0: My siblings were like, Francesca was the same way. So what what kind of pies are we having? Like, <laughs> there was, and there was apple pie at at my there, brother's.
1: There was, but I, but I think Christmas desserts, I think cookies Christmas, and cakes. So Christmas, Christmas cookies.
0: is not a pie dessert.
1: Christmas is not a pie dessert holiday it's a cookie and cake holiday maybe it's a cultural thing i don't know maybe i i can't believe we've been married this long and and i was just like looking at you like you had two heads like pie i was i thought
0: it was funny like you just like you were so flabbergasted (laughs) by saying pie what kind of
1: pie are we having for christmas what yeah
0: anyway ricotta pie you know anyway um so then this week we had a few two, three different things, but I wanted to highlight one, which is a way to use up if you if you like cheese and our, my family, we, we we like cheese. We like cheese. We like lots of cheeses, but we end, always end up with these hunks of cheese in the in the cheese drawer. <laughs> we have a cheese drawer. We have a, you know, a cool kit drawer like a lot of people do in the fridge. And so we have all these, like, ends of cheeses, blocks of cheeses. They get a little dried out, maybe, or they just...
1: A little tiny bit moldy, but you can pare the mold off. And this is a recipe I saw from Jacques Pepin uh, on social media a couple on of Facebook. years
0: ago. Yeah, two years ago, yeah.
1: Um, anyway, it's, it's he, his adaptation of his father's recipe, um, and it's called fromage for uh, strong... We-
0: Strong, Strong cheese. cheese. Yeah.
1: And he said his father used to take the ends of the cheese and put them in with like a leek broth into a jar and then like stick it in the cellar for two weeks and then eat it.
0: Yeah, it was like fermented in like the kind jar. Of a
1: fermented cheese thing. But Jacques Pepin just puts all the bits of cheese into the food processor with a clove of garlic or some several cloves of garlic, actually, and some white wine. And it's like a mixture of hard cheeses and soft cheeses. He even throws in some American cheese and some goat cheese and that sort of stuff. Like,
0: like any cheese.
1: Any cheese. Any cheese. And just mix it all up. I think it was like process the garlic cloves, then process the hard cheeses, and then add the soft cheeses and the wine. And you you do want a
0: combination of hard and soft to to make it right. spreadable.
1: But, but if you only have hard cheeses, your soft cheese could be like, cream cheese, you could add sour cream, you could add, um, like, so really it's very, very flexible. And he said, whatever dairy you have, he said, the joy is that it's different every single time.
0: Yeah. So we made that, we tended to have a surprise, a lot of Italian cheeses. Yeah. There
1: was, um,
0: Asiago, Pecorino,
1: uh, Parmesan, uh, mozzarella, there's, there's a lot of those cheeses. There was a, there was like a bit of Jarlsberg and some cheddar and...
0: Some Gouda. Yeah, we had some of the other ones too. Uh,
1: it was good. Now, as just like the whipped sort of cheese, it was it was good. I'm not sure how much of it I would eat. But I what think, was magic? I,
0: well, first, in the fridge overnight, might be even better. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, but what, what was, was magic. really
1: magic was taking that... And spreading it on some toast, some lightly toasted bread, and putting it under the broiler for a couple minutes until the cheese got all melty, that was amazing. (laughs) It's
0: like the best grilled cheese you ever had.
1: Yeah, and I, I started off with some really good bread because I had some beer bread that I had made, and I knew that we weren't going to finish it, and I just could not bear to see this bread mold and go bad, so I just sliced it up and put it in the freezer. Uh, So it was a really good rye and whole wheat with, um, I think it was the, uh, like a stout.
0: Right. Yeah, it was a dark beer. Like
1: a dark stout beer, bread. And so that with the fromage four was so good.
0: And because it had a lot of Italian cheeses, it had a slight pizza taste to it. Yeah, Sophie said, it's kind of like a pizza and we were thinking like if we'd put a little sauce on the bread under the cheese, it it would,
1: that would have been like the best pizza ever. (laughs) In fact, I think that the fromage four would make really good homemade pizza. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It. Yeah. Just think like if you had a little like, um, pizza rounds, like flatbreads, Mm -hmm. maybe like the naan or something like that.
1: Right. And just spread the cheese on, put it under the boiler. Oh, so good.
0: Yeah, from Ashwar. Definitely check it out. I'll see if I can get a way to link to the original video of him uh, showing it.
1: Oh, yeah, because because you really I've seen several people like repost the Jacques Pampin recipe. But what you really want is the video of Jacques making it because he's so cute. I love him. <laughs>
0: Just, Jacques Pampin. He was he was a lockdown star during the during COVID. Uh, he, he did a lot of stuff and got really like. Not just famous. I mean, he's already famous, but people were really tuning in. He had kind of had a second career out of his kitchen.
1: What I love about Jacques Pepin is that he cooks French food, but it's not like... That fussy. Fussy, fancy French chef in a five-star restaurant French food. It's like everyday, ordinary... I'm throwing together some stuff from the odds and ends I have left over in the kitchen sort of French food. Yeah, it's, it's I wouldn't say necessarily peasant food. Well, it's kind of peasant food, but it's just like it's ordinary people food. It's suburban.
0: If there's such a thing as suburban France. That's the sort of food It's family food.
1: Yeah, I. I feel like he's approachable. He makes me feel like, yes, you can cook this and you are not like,
0: right. Well, like Julia child or, um, yeah, you know, the Gallup and gourmet and you know, what's his name? I forget his name, but yeah, like a lot of those, um, original TV chefs. Uh, so the other thing I just want to mention is, is uh, what Melanie is drinking right now. I'm not drinking at the moment, but, uh, we had Prosecco for to toast in the new year. And I had like, what do we do with, extra Prosecco, you make Bellinis and I have this, you know, cocktail recipe for a Bellini, which has peach puree and Prosecco. And I'm like, Oh, if only we had some peaches.
1: We've always got peaches in the
0: freezer. We have frozen peaches in the freezer that we use in the, uh, uh, in smoothies. So I'm like, Oh, okay. So I got some out to frost a little, did the hand immersion blender, blended it up. Um, and I also, you also picked up the other, we went to the liquor store when we got the Prosecco And you picked up some peach vodka.
1: Now, the reason I picked up this peach vodka is, which is not something I would normally get. I did have peach uh, liqueur on my shopping list, Mm -hmm. but I got this instead because it's Deep Eddy brand. And Deep Eddy is a swimming hole in Austin. And so that like grabbed my attention from across the room. I'm like, ooh, it's Austin vodka.
0: (laughs) And everybody knows that Texas vodka is better and Austin vodka is the best.
1: I have no idea. I'm not really a vodka <laughs> drinker, but the the name, it was just it charmed me. Yeah, it felt like home. And so I had to buy it. Awesome. Yeah,
0: it's not bad. I mean, uh, it's not cold enough, which I I would have thought with the frozen uh, peaches and the and the Prosecco that was in the fridge. It would be colder, but I don't know. Maybe it's just um.
1: Maybe the vodka needed to be chilled too.
0: Yeah, maybe, or just throw it. I should have thrown it in a mixing in a shaker with some ice. Yeah, it would have been better. But it was good. It was it was pretty good. And you know, with the a little bit of the peach vodka, in it it would uh, added a little bit more peach kick. So that's what we've been eating. And
1: for New Year's, I made fudge.
0: Oh right, fudge. Uh,
1: I made just a really quick microwave fudge. My favorite recipe where you take the can of sweetened condensed milk and two cups of chocolate chips and you heat them in the microwave until they're all melty, and then you stir in vanilla. Um and
0: then you put it in a in a pan. Except
1: this time, in addition to the vanilla, I put in a couple teaspoons of amaretto and a half cup of almond slices. So Mm. it was not strongly amaretto, but it had just a little bit of an amaretto flavor to it which i thought was really good.
0: Yeah, that's good. It's it like i guess it's super easy.
1: Yeah, i mean there are fudge recipes which are very finicky and you have to have the candy thermometer and get it to the exact right and you can't stir it too much or too little or whatever. That's not my or
0: use speed. chocolate chips and sweetened condensed milk.
1: That's not my that's not my speed. No.
0: So, all right. So let's talk about things we've been watching and reading. Uh, obviously, over vacation, there's a lot more <laughs> watching of things. Yes. Uh, so I, while you were away in Texas, I, well, I don't know if this was while you were away. Anyway, uh, I watched Jungle Cruise movie with Dwayne Johnson and, oh, what's her name? John Krasinski's wife, Emily Blunt. Based on the, the Disney, Disney ride, the Disney ride. And In fact, there's an opening I, scene that is right out of the Disney ride. Like uh-huh. it's like where like he's got Taurus on the boat and he's going to, and he's like pretending that they're being attacked by wild animals and all this sort of stuff.
1: I, I read reviews. I was not, it was not intrigued. It was,
0: it was okay. Although I have to give it credit. There was a huge twist near the end. I did not see coming. That's impressive. Yeah, it was. I'm like, Oh, okay. No, I mean, The Rock was so okay, cute, you know, in, in a role like this. He's, you know, he's not playing to type as he's still an action hero a bit in this, but he's not like big, brutal action hero, dude, like oversized dude, all the you know, the whole way. Um, he's more like just regular guy action hero in this. Um, and it's not he's not just, you know, a mindless brute. So I, I give him credit for that. It was entertaining a little bit. There was a scene in it where um, the main character, Emily Blunt's character, is you know a female adventurer, and of course we have to go to the the whole trope about the misogyny of the early 20th century and all that sort of stuff. We had to you know get into that. But there's a scene where her, like her brother is is coming along with her, and he's talking with the Rock at some point, and he just. Like blaze out there that how he's gay and it's like it was completely irrelevant to the movie. It had no bearing whatsoever on anything else going on in the movie. But we had to like it was like oh it just felt so gratuitous. So uh, that's one knock against it that that I had uh, on it. um So yeah, it was all right. Uh, I mean I always enjoy watching Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt is always a delight in whatever she's in she's always fun. Uh, I finally finished. The Netflix series Longmire, I've been watching that for about a year. It was six seasons on uh, Netflix, I think, of 10 episodes each season. And um, Katie Sackhoff was in it. Right. And Lou Diamond Phillips and some other folks. You, uh, the, the main character played Longmire is an Australian actor that I didn't, haven't seen him anything else, so you probably wouldn't recognize him. But I really enjoyed the show. It, so it's So it takes place contemporary in Wyoming, a fictional county called Absaroka County. And the uh, Longmire's, Walt Longmire's a sheriff. And it's about his, you know, crimes and but also overarching uh, themes um, and overarching story arcs throughout the series. And I really liked it. It was, it didn't have any like ideological agenda. There was no agendas like that in there. There was, um, in fact, there was a bit of, kind of a throwback ethics and morality. He was kind of like a John Wayne character in some ways. Um, you know, stoic, strong, um, maybe almost stoic to a fault at times, but uh, you know, strong and had his own uh, code that he lived by. And it was a good series. I'm, I'm glad I watched it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, your mom recommended it to me.
1: Yeah, I watched the first couple episodes with you, and then you kept watching while I didn't.
0: Right, because you were never available to watch it. So, like, well, you can catch up. I I recommend you watch it, just like you did with she- Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.
1: One of these days, I'll, yeah. I'll binge watch it, probably. When I need something to watch.
0: So we watched together the new movie Glass Onion. Yeah, that was fun. That's the sequel to Knives Out uh, uh, with... Um, James Wan,
1: Daniel Craig,
0: Daniel Craig playing the, uh, the main character, uh, sort of an effete Southern detective. Um, and, uh, the whole cast of stars that were in it. And, uh, it, it's sort of billed as, Oh, the, you know, he's the world's greatest detective and it's, it's the glass onion is the name of it. And you kind of expect the story to have all of these layers and layers. um, and while it was, it was okay, right? I thought it was good. It was pretty good. It, it it was funny in parts and there was some action.
1: Now, both of us, while we were watching, overthought it. And we kept anticipating the plot getting more complicated than it did. That's my
0: primary criticism.
1: And I think that that, I think that if maybe we had spent less time speculating, we might've enjoyed it more. I think
0: more. It's more the fact that the plot was relatively flat. It like, it was kind of obvious in the sense it was too obvious. If we're telling the story, the greatest detective in the world, and we have these elements that they introduce. I don't want to give too much away, but where oh that you know that could be really a, a real uh, twist and a real trick, but it never is. It's just exactly what it is, and it's like okay. I don't and like it's just it never ends up going there. It's like wh- why not? Like you could have done more and he, and it's it's just he went the very obvious route. Like
1: you know to to me the killer is the way too obvious one in the end. Right, we were expecting it to be more sort of Agatha Christie like misdirection like not right oh, It can't possibly be that guy it has to be this guy or that guy or the other guy and
0: Right, I expected you call it glass onion, which it's glass onion is a reference to a, a bar that all of the uh, characters had some connection to in their past. But I also expected to be like an onion, like you, you, you layers, you, layers, right? And it's like, oh, I guess. Um, there was a lot of it, comparing to Knives Out. It it was a bigger movie because Knives Out was so popular, uh, that. They they needed to go even bigger. I mean, Ice hound had a had an all star cast, it did. but it was a smaller movie. This was a much bigger movie, I guess. And there was like stunt casting with cameos and stuff. Um, oh, who was the guy doing the COVID, the COVID vaccine thingy at the beginning? There, uh, the he, he was in the movie we watched on Apple TV with Ewan McGregor and his the two brothers. Um.
1: Anyway, I'm, I'm blanking.
0: Yeah, he had a cameo, and there were some other things like that. So um,
1: I I thought it was really fun. It was just not quite as complicated as we thought. If I think if I if I'd gone in with different expectations, I would not have been disappointed. It
0: um, it was spectacle. That's for sure. It had, it had plenty of spectacle to it. Uh, there was a quote. Um, now I'm gonna. Here it is. The, there was a quote in it that I thought it was. Really good. At one point, um, the character Ben Benoit Blanc is speaking to one of the other characters, and she says, uh, "Oh, some people get offended because I I speak my truth." And he says to her, "It's a dangerous thing to mistake speaking without thought for speaking the truth." I thought that is really good. <laughs> Because there, there are a lot of people out there who are like, I'm just speaking my truth, and what they're really doing is just speaking without thought. Just this, they're being. They're, they're I'm just a blunt beating. person, huh? They're bloviating. Yeah, I'm a, just a, a blunt person. No, you're just <laughs> you're rude and, and thoughtless. But yeah, so that was that was a good that was a good quote from the movie. So what did you ha- what have you been watching uh, lately? Let's see,
1: um, I did several like very light popcorny things while I was wrapping presents cuz I want to have something to distract me while wrapping presents but nothing that's going to like get me too uh too engrossed. Yes. Uh so I watched the second Enola Holmes movie which was very lighthearted and fun. I I mean the the anachronisms are horrible and it's really not very close to the spirit of the original Sherlock Holmes, but it's fun. It's just silly, fun costume drama, like it's a romp.
0: Yeah, I watched the first one and it was amusing.
1: Yeah, it's it's nothing. If you if I take it too seriously, I and try to critique it, I will be all, like all over it. But just as a fun, I don't expect anything from this movie except to be entertained. It was entertaining. Um, then I also watched uh a Netflix uh adaptation of a book that I've never read, partly because I thought that I probably wouldn't enjoy the book, um, called Catherine Called Birdie. And uh it's a novel that's set in the Middle Ages. It's for sort of the junior high level reader. Um, the protagonist is 14 and she's a very modern 14-year-old girl. And she does not nothing about her feels in keeping with the Middle Ages at all, except the fact that like her material living conditions are medieval but her attitude her her point of view is very modern. It was okay the modernization and the it's ironic because like I was not at all bothered by the anachronisms in Anola Holmes, not expecting much from it, and plus Holmes is like fictional, whereas this is supposed to be set in the middle ages and it's kind of wants you to take it seriously as being a, a view of the middle ages or at least it seemed so to me. And it was not mm. a book, a movie that I could take very seriously. And I get the feeling that the the original novel was also not seriously trying to immerse the young reader in a medieval mindset, but just making the middle ages relevant, which I guess I personally have a problem with that. I, I think that with younger readers, especially anachronisms are more glaring Mm. because they don't have the discrimination to tell that this is just a modern character dressed up in medieval clothes they really think that they're learning about the way people were back in the middle ages and they're not. And that bothers me.
0: Right. I'd agree.
1: Uh, But it was, it was okay. Then I also watched the first episode of Wednesday, which is the uh, Netflix, Netflix um, sort of sequel
0: to the Adams family. Almost.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a Adams family not so much a remake, but like a spin-off. Wednesday Wednesday Adams um at boarding school.
0: Yeah. In high school. It's super popular right now.
1: Right. It was fun. I, I, I will probably eventually go back and, and watch the rest of it. I mean, it is silly, it is campy, but that's the Addams family for you. Yeah. And there is just no pretensions about it. Um, Christina Ricci, who played uh Wednesday Adams in the 19 whatever.
0: The early 1990s movie.
1: Um plays Morticia in this one and she's fun. And it's very like stereotypical every trope from teen fantasy fiction comes out like the cool kids at the school are divided into four groups. And guess what? They're the werewolves, the vampires, <laughs> right the um i'm trying to remember the other two the the sirens and the the stoners oh the the gorgons because they're the stoners right. oh uh, gorgons, uh, get it? Stoners. stoners it i mean you really it was a gag not like a real attempt to try to nail down the culture of a magical school but as a gag it was funny all all
0: depictions of magical schools in tv now are just derivations of Hogwarts. Yes, pretty
1: much. pretty much. I mean, it's it's fun, and as usual with the Adams family, the really fun bits come when they come in contact with the normals and are completely bizarre, um, and defy expectations. And it has it has all of that. It was fun. Um, I said that too many times.
0: <laughs> Catherine Culberty, by the way, uh-huh. the her mother, the character's mother. Was Billy Piper? Uh huh. Is Rose from Doctor Who?
1: Yeah, that's so weird. (laughs) And Andrew Scott was in it too. Yes, Andrew Scott was in it as the dad. Yeah. Like, weirdest parent couple ever. You've got (laughs) Professor Moriarty from the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock and Rose from Doctor Who.
0: Rose Tyler. It's, yeah. yeah.
1: But, yeah. Anyway.
0: Written and directed by Lena Dunham, which is kind of interesting.
1: That in itself should probably have clued me in that I wasn't really going to like it. In fact, I did not set out to watch this movie. It was more like I was flipping through Netflix looking for something. And I was just curious enough about it to look at the preview. And then instead of showing me the preview, it just started the movie. And I just was too distracted to stop it.
0: If people go looking for it, it's actually on Amazon, not Netflix. Oh,
1: not Netflix? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway. Sorry. <laughs> Wrong streaming service. Wrong streaming
0: service. So uh, so that's what we've been watching. So you've been reading, as usual. A lot. A lot. Uh, you, you finished your book that you were reading last time?
1: I finished, yeah, A Ghost in the Throat, which was the semi-fictionalized memoir of... cannot remember her name because it's Irish. Uh, oh, yes. The poet. The poet. Yeah. Uh, Doreen Nee, something or other um oh, now you have to go look it up yeah see i anyway. should i should remember this It. i think the first part of the, the book was my favorite part and after that it kind of dragged after a while but it was good i mean she continues to be obsessed and she never really finds the answers to her questions about the original poet ah uh. Because really, you can't. I mean, it's essentially sort of a... There is no historical record. And so, ultimately, it's kind of about the way in which the historical record, the official record, does not contain much about historical women. If you look for a specific woman, you often can't nail down her biography because she just slips through the cracks. And so it's kind of this interesting... Sort of the meta the the primary metaphor I would think for the experience of reading the book is like trying to hold a handful of sand and watching it slip through your fingers. Like the tighter she grabs at the history, the less she has. Right. Um. So it was interesting. Uh, then I also read or reread till we had faces till we have faces the C.S. Lewis novel, which again his best book.
0: So. Space trilogy, which I've never read. Are they literally like three parts of a story, or are they three separate stories?
1: They're three separate stories, but the the characters overlap. Like each one is kind of a standalone, but um, but the main character Ransom is in all of them.
0: Okay, so is it like Narnia, where it's a like Narnia ha- like has each book is its own self-contained thing, but they're all telling part of a complete story.
1: Sort of. I mean, <laughs> less so. I, I don't like the space trilogy as much as I like Narnia. I feel like Lewis was a huge, he was a huge science fiction fan. Yeah. And he wanted to write science fiction that was sort of like Narnia, that, that got to a deeper truth. Like what is the truth about space what's the truth that space like he he wanted to write something that wasn't secular that I mean there wasn't atheists that Mm -hmm. had a truth and I the parts I like best about the space trilogy are the parts where he is kind of grabbing at the theological aspects of it the parts that fail for me most is when it's most science fictiony right um so out of the silent planet is sort of the hero travels to Mars and finds what 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 Lewis does, interestingly enough, is that he finds that the Martians are an unfallen species. They know God. They have never fallen. So they are living sort of as Adam and Eve would have in the Garden of Eden in relationship with God. And they're the ones who refer to Earth as the silent planet because Earth is under the shadow of evil. Okay, Then... Paralandra, he goes to Venus and he finds there an unfallen woman who is then undergoes a temptation by the bad guy from Earth. So she is an Eve who is being tempted, but the tempter is a human from Earth as opposed to an angel. Okay. Although it's possible he's possessed by the shadow of the the angelic being that has corrupted earth so it kind of feels like a case of possession i can't remember it's been so long since i've read it if he's literally possessed or if he's just sort of evil okay um and ransom then takes on the role both of adam and of christ of being the ransom literally right to try to prevent her from falling um that is interesting. And then the third one, I feel like kind of goes off the rails because he brings back Merlin and it's very, it's set on Earth and it feels very, very, very much more of its time than the other two of the space trilogy.
0: Until We Have Faces is not part of the space trilogy. Until We Have
1: Faces is completely different. Until We Have Faces is his last and best novel, it's a retelling of the Cupid and Psyche myth.
0: Oh, okay. No, for some reason, I thought it was part of the special issue. Okay.
1: Completely unrelated. Um, Yeah, Till We Have Faces is basically Cupid and Psyche, but told from a Christian perspective. Except it's not, none of the characters are Christian. I mean, it is set in the pre-Christian pagan times, but the imagination that tells the story is Christian. Like Lord of the Rings right um except more i i feel like it's a little bit more directly allegorical i mean lewis is always a little bit more allegorical than tolkien is it's not an allegory right. but it pushes a little bit closer towards the the boundaries of allegory I, it's a beautiful book um the the main character is psyche's sister the one who tempts psyche to look at her um hidden god husband because she says he's not really a god um he's a monster and she is a woman who is profoundly flawed who wants to challenge the gods because she thinks that they are unfair and so the book is written from the first person point of view as her testament against testimony against the gods okay um and if if you know Cupid and Psyche which is sort of the one of the basic legends it's the one that underlies Beauty and the Beast, for example. Beauty and the Beast is just a Cupid and Psyche story.
0: Okay, Um, I see that.
1: It's kind of one of the most fundamental stories, and I love what Lewis does with it. He really baptizes it and makes it his own. It's a really beautiful novel. Okay. Um, And then let's see, what else did I read?
0: You reread another book that you've read a couple
1: times. Oh, I reread The Goblin Emperor, which I just keep rereading. I love it. I don't know why I love it so much, but I do. It felt like the perfect New Year's Eve book to curl up with and just binge read and I finished it today. <laughs> <laughs> you started it yesterday and Oh, I think it I day. actually finished it. I started it a, a few days ago because I just wanted something kind of comforting and familiar to read rather than starting something new. Um I mean, I I am working on a couple of new things, but nothing that was really grabbing me right now.
0: Okay. Well, I finished a book. Called Travels with George in Search of Washington and His Legacy. Yeah, you've been talking about that, right? By Nathaniel Philbrick. Yep, I finally finished it. Uh, New Year's Eve, I finished it. So I got it in just under the wire on my Goodreads. Oh, there you go. And uh, it was the only nonfiction book I read last year, I realized.
1: You know, I looked over and I really did not read a lot of nonfiction last year. It just felt like a year for reading fiction. For reading fiction.
0: I, I read a lot of genre fiction, the series that I've been reading. Yep. I need to. To expand back out again. Part of the problem is, is I'm there's certain uh, history. I like reading history, revolutionary war history books, and some of those I'm waiting for authors to release their next book. So that, that that's part of it. I mean, I'm sure there's other good books out there that are history. I've been reading to read Stephen Ambrose's World War Two uh, book, Citizen Soldier, but uh, I may I may pick that up at some point too. But this book travels for George. It's a bit of a a different book from Philbrick. It's, it's a much more personal book. So, w- after he was elected, George Washington took a series of journeys throughout the country. I mentioned it before. I know. I'm just going to recap a little bit. And uh, Philbrick, with his wife and their dog, kind of followed along. And so, what this book is, is both it's both history, but also a little bit of a travelogue. And so, a lot of Philbrick's personality comes out in it, which is interesting. He spends a lot of it talking about slavery, and the second part of the book had a lot more about slavery in it because this that covers the southern journey that that he took, that Washington took, goes a lot into uh, this his relationship with Jefferson as well, and it's not a it's I thought at first it was just going to be simply Washington bad he owned slaves although he was a great man it it had a, a very nuanced take on. Washington's complexity. He had a complex uh, attitude about slavery and owning slaves. He was, at points, he was intensely uncomfortable with it. He wanted to free his slaves. But unfortunately, some of the slaves of Mount Vernon were owned by Martha Washington's first husband's estate. And by law, he had no right to free them. Uh, And neither did Martha, The, the estate. Owned them. It was really awful situation, and because the slaves that Washington owned were intermarried with the the Martha's slaves, if he freed his own slaves, you'd, you'd have this. You create this separation in families, and you know maybe he should have anyway. I, I don't know. Like, but it was a he wrestled with it, and he wrestled with it his whole life, and in the end, he ended up freeing them uh And Martha ended up uh freeing her slaves after after he died um and she inherited you know that she got the whole estate or whatever it was and there was another point where he like they had an- a, one of the slaves escaped and he like used every means possible to bring her back. It's one of martha's slaves, and so maybe he felt an obligation to her estate you know i don't know but in 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 any case he also believed that people should be free and that the, that that there should you know, shouldn't be slavery. So it was a very complex relationship. So that part of the book was interesting. I don't know if it was I'd call it unsatisfying, but it was interesting. But it was really good was to see how so much of what we think of as the presidency, I mean, it's obvious in retrospect, was formed by what Washington did in those days. Like, what does it mean to be president of the United States? It didn't necessary. it wasn't necessary that the president of the United States be the highest, most respected man in the land. You know, at one or one point early on, many people thought that the governors of the individual states should outrank the president. In fact, when Washington came to Massachusetts and he came to Boston, um, Hancock invited him to his house. Um Sort of, but not not in a like formal. If you you know, come, but sort of a, uh, f- from higher to lower, inviting him to to attend him at his home, you know, sort of thing. And Washington refused to go until finally, uh, it became so apparent and because Washington was so popular in the time that that you know everyone was on Washington's side. That Hancock, fi- it became so clear that there was this division. Hancock finally had to come to Washington to see him. Where he was staying in Boston, and it was this very. So it was very interesting how Washington created the American presidency by just the way he he carried himself. He he could have created a, a royal presidency. He could have turned him, you know, been just like any king anywhere. He would have got away with it too. And Washington could have pretty much done anything he wanted to. He could have set up himself up as a, you know essentially a royal. But he didn't do that either. It was too humble for that. And so he 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 didn't like the pomp and circumstance. He allowed certain, you know, people to do things. But he whenever he could avoid it, he'd avoided, you know, big military escorts and a big to-do and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, it was really, really interesting. I've read so much about him during the war. I hadn't read as much about him or almost anything about him after the war as president and it was really after the war, they went back to never always, sorry. It's always comes back to Hamilton and it always comes back to Hamilton. And uh so I thought it was, that was good in that respect. And I'd, I, I ne- I would like to read more about president Washington to find out more about that era uh after the war. So that was, so it was good. So it's a, it's a pretty good book. Uh I'd recommend that one. I've picked up a new Tom Clancy uh, that I'll talk about when I finish that. My goal is to read faster. And the only way I'm going to read faster is to stop reading as much social media. That has been, I think, over the last couple of years has been really my downfall with reading is I, my free time, I open the phone and I look at Twitter. And what I should be doing is picking up my Kindle and reading my book. I also have the uh, Tolkien Fall of Numenor book that I got uh-huh. on my desk right there. And uh, the new hardbound copy of the Silmarillion, which I've read the Silmarillion a bunch of times, but I want to reread that. And I'm going to read those in hardback, like kind of the old fashioned way. (laughs) For you, that's not a big deal. For me, it's kind of a big deal to read a hardcover book. Right. Everything's Kindle all these days.
1: How many books did you end up reading this past
0: year? 15. Wow. I think it was 15. Might have been 12. 12. 15 is my new goal, which I'm going to surpass. By a long way, I mean to give it uh, perspective. Three years ago, it was thirty-five.
1: Right. You,
0: so I really fell behind. You have. So I I need to. There's so many books uh, that are on my list. <laughs> I will never catch up if I don't start reading them. So uh, I really need to get at it.
1: I so. I actually felt pretty good. My my goal for the year was uh, fifty-two. I was going to do a book a week mm-hmm. on average. Yep. And uh, I ended up with seventy-one. Wow. Not counting the rereads, although I did count a couple of books that I was reading with the kids
0: <laughs> so not counting the rereads, wow, Father Roderick does like over a hundred, but he does lots of audiobooks,
1: yeah, I found audiobooks definitely kicked my um my numbers up. There were a few books that I read. By audio
0: i just don't have time for audiobooks because i'm because
1: you listen to podcasts i
0: listen to a lot of podcasts so
1: i i listen to more audiobooks than podcasts
0: yeah not even my podcasts
1: no i don't
0: <laughs> you hear me enough so uh <laughs> you know otherwise That's probably it. is probably it cool all right uh this is going long so let's get to our segment where we talk about what we've been hearing at mass and so Uh, I'm not going to go all the way back to Christmas. Let's talk about today, the Feast of Mary, Mother of God, the Octave Day of Christmas, and the readings which really focus on... It's kind of funny. um, the, The gospel is a nativity reading, though, which is the shepherds going... The shepherds went in haste to Bethlehem and found Mary and Joseph and the infant lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known the message that had been told them about this child... All who heard it were amazed by what had been told them by the shepherds. And Mary kept all these things reflecting on them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen, heard and seen, just as it had been told to them. When eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given to him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb.
1: So, so it does have a distinctly Marian flavor because it oh yeah. focuses on the Mary pondering things in her heart. Yes. Which works Beautifully for today's feast of Mary, Mother of God.
0: Right. I mean, this is Mary in her motherhood at at its most essential right here. And so Father Matt said one of his favorite writers, which I'm guessing was Chesterton.
1: He didn't name the writer though.
0: Right. So, like, because last week he mentioned he he name checked Chesterton at Christmas. So, um, I'm guessing it was Chesterton. I, I didn't recognize this as a Chesterton thing, but said his favorite writer, um, names three words that really jump out of this uh, this gospel, that really uh, are these emblematic. So the first one that really is important here is haste. The shepherds went in haste. And he says, where else do we hear about haste? Mary went in haste to Elizabeth after Gabriel had given her the message. And he's, he said, when we have an experience of God made manifest, when God, God doesn't just show up and say, hey, how's it going? How are you doing? I just thought I'd stop by. See, how you doing?
1: God, God appears to us to give us a mission.
0: God's got a, per- got a, is that a mission from God? God's got a purpose. When he shows up, he's got something for you. If you ever see an angel, you know, life is about to change. So go, when God becomes manifest, we're given a task and we take that commission in haste. You know, there's no time to waste. Don't delay. It's to, when you're called, you got to go. And so then the reflection is, how am I called to respond to the love that God has for me? How am I called by God? We're called and we're moved to respond. It's not just, okay, I'll get around to it. No, when God, when you get that call, it's like, it's like the emergency call, you know, at the uh, at the fire station, and you, you slide down the pole and get in the truck, you know, you gotta go. She's making a face. Um, I got all the sound effects today.
1: That was a weird sound effect. You
0: I've, know the bah, bah, beep, bah. No. emergency okay. fifty one. You've got a call. Blah, 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 you know. I
1: have no idea what you're talking about. If,
0: if you are over a certain age, you watch the TV show Emergency Fifty One. Um,
1: I've never heard of it.
0: It's yeah, you're not old enough, and it was a show about a firehouse in Los Angeles, of course, and but it was particularly about the EMT crew. And they had, there were emergency, there you know, engine 51, firehouse, emergency 51. And so whenever the alarm would go off in the firehouse, it would have particular tones to denote, I think, what kind of call it was or something like that. Anyway, so it's always been in my head, you know, that's that's what the emergency in the firehouse sounds like. Anyway, uh, so the second word (laughs) was amazed. All who heard it were amazed, or some translations have it as astonished. Or astounded. Or astounded, which is another word some astounded. We can be astonished by God. You know, we he's he talks about how we can hear God in the created order, okay? We hear God in or in a beautiful beautiful nature or art or music. But when he breaks into our lives in that supernatural way, in the beyond the created order way, it it changes us. We we are astounded. We're we you know, we are amazed. We're breathless and wordless. We're silenced in the face of it. We just for a moment we're frozen. We can't wow. Just you can't even put into words what you want to say. And that's that's that amazement. We're astonished by God. And so that astonishment changes us. Well he said
1: he said what makes it different is that we are moved. Not like emotionally moved, but in terms of moving to action, right like that that experience of God moves us into doing not just experiencing experiencing or being right when you hear
0: beautiful music, you are moved emotionally but but when you when you hear God calling, you're moved to action and then cherish. Or, you know, this gospel says she reflected them on these things in her heart. Some translations have it. She cherished them in her heart, which I think is a better word.
1: Yeah. The one I think mostly is pondered, but I like Mm. cherish better because you cherish something is not just to reflect or to ponder. It's to treasure. To treasure it. And,
0: And not just treasure like you shove it in the safe and walk away. And now you don't, you know, you know, it's in there. You don't have to worry about it. To cherish something is to hold it, hold it close and to consider it and to think about it and to hold it dear. Um, You know, if if you have a cherished, he talked about we have often have cherished gifts from people. Like if uh, I have, for example, I have a uh, Zippo lighter that my dad gave me that was his Zippo when he was in the Navy. And he was on his first, you know, cruise to the Mediterranean on on their ship. And he gave it to me. It has like an inscription on it and everything like that. And I cherish that. Not just because it's a lighter. I mean, as a lighter, it's not very good. It doesn't actually light anymore. But because of what it means, what it connects me to. And so when Mary hears this, she holds them in her heart. You cherish what is dear or irreplaceable. And all these things that she heard were irreplaceable. So I really like that. So it was a, so you haste, astonished and cherish uh, those three words from this gospel. I also love the idea that I was thinking about the shepherds seeing the choirs of angels singing. That would that would have changed their lives. They would be they would be different from the rest of their
1: lives. I love the um the antiphons for the um morning prayer for the octave of Christmas have an antiphon. Um, Tell us shepherds. What have you seen? What has appeared on earth? We have seen a newborn infant in a choir of angels, praising the Lord. Mm. And I really, that one for some reason just really hits home. I think it's the sort of the question and answer part, like tell us shepherds. What have you seen? Like that they're announcing.
0: I want to. I want a scene in an episode of The Chosen where Jesus encounters one of the shepherds all these years later. Oh, that would be awesome. And the shepherd himself just, I do you. I saw you as a baby. I knew you. The angels spoke to me, you know, that he'd be an old man by this point, you know, and you know, maybe he was a, you know, a boy like Ben's age at that time, and now he'd be an older man now. And I just, I knew what, you know, what, because of what the angel said, I've known all this time.
1: Right. I mean, it's interesting that um, God chose to announce his presence to the world. To the lowest of the low. The shepherds. Shepherds were not
0: at all anywhere on the ranking of society. They they hung out with smelly sheep all day and night. <laughs> they were not well, not quite welcome in polite society. And yet, they're the ones that were given the message. That was the thing: is they they made known the message and told them about the the child, and they went to go tell everyone. It's wild. It's wild. So, um, beautiful gospel on a beautiful Sunday, and I love the Christmas octave. It is. Just gorgeous. All right, let's wrap things up there. We want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create Raising the Bets, including Susan P., David S., Jared H., Richard V., and Janelle K. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue raising the bets in all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. And that's it for this time. Find links from our discussion in our show notes at sqpn.com bets. That's B-E-T-T-S. Send your feedback at the StarQuest Facebook page, facebook.com slash StarQuest Media. Send us an email at bets at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash Discord. Follow Reason the Bets in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or at the StarQuest YouTube channel, where you should also make sure to hit the bell to get notifications. Until next time, I'm Dom Bettinelli. And I'm Melanie Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Racing the Bets on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest network you're sure to enjoy, The Secrets of Stargate. Find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com stargate.